Open uh, your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, and we're entering, if you can believe it, the last uh, chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to start by reading the first six verses, and I think cover the first five of them uh, this morning. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Hear the Lord Jesus, and I, oh, I wasn't going to say this, but in Isaiah 2, there's this prophecy that the nations will stream to hear God's word. And it just struck me afresh this week as I heard that verse quoted, that that's what's happening this morning. Literally the fulfillment of that prophecy, that you and I who are drawn from all the different nations of the world uh, have gathered together to hear God's word because Jesus promised some 2,700 years ago that that's what we would do. And uh, so that's just a great joy as we think about listening to every word that drops from Jesus' tongue. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you lord we want to ask you that you would humble us under your word our hearts would tremble at your word both myself who preaches it and all those who receive it that we would be a people who delight to receive your word and that we would be changed by it and you would create a Christ-likeness that is compelling to this city and to everywhere we're able to send missionaries to proclaim your gospel. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The first two words of our passage are two of the most misunderstood words in the entire Sermon on the Mount, maybe in the entire Bible. Jesus starts this section of his most famous sermon with these two words, judge not. And it's these two words that are quite misunderstood uh, in our day and in our culture. Um, They're often misunderstood by non-Christians and Christians alike. Uh, Often a Christian, maybe you've been in this particular situation, maybe a Christian will explain what the Bible teaches about Christ being the way and the truth and the light and life and no man comes to the Father except through him. They they explain the exclusivity of Jesus Christ and uh, the implications, of course, that all other religions are wrong and what comes back at you but the words of Christ. You're not supposed to be judging. You're not supposed to judge me. And so you have Christ being set against Christ, and this can happen in all kinds of uh, situations. It can be uh, when describing the biblical sexual ethic. It can be describing any matter of 
Christian morality that makes another person feel pinched in their soul. It can produce this almost involuntary response from them. Hey, I know a verse that applies to what you're doing right now. You're not supposed to judge me. Jesus told you not to. Now, what do we do with that? Because the exclusivity of Jesus is in the scriptures and the strict moral demands of Jesus are in the scriptures and the command not to judge is in the scriptures. How do we put all that together? Other times it's Christians who quote this verse uh, to one another. Uh, Sometimes when Christians get together, they find themselves discussing doctrines or issues like gambling or modesty or the nature of the church. And sometimes it's heard along the way that as they're talking about these things, one Christian will say to another, hey, let me just shut this down right now. You're not supposed to be judgmental. You're not supposed to judge me. And again, we're faced with a problem because the Bible has very dogmatic things to say about different points of doctrine and about how we make money, which ties into gambling, about uh, modesty, and the Bible says, judge not. So it's gonna take some thinking for us to understand how the Bible can call us to, uh, some th- to call some things wrong and some things right, and to tell us at the same time, we're not supposed to judge. So, how do we think through this? The, the first thing we need to do is we need to understand that the, the word judge in, in the ancient Greek, which Matthew comes to us in, the word judge in, in Greek had a wide range of meanings. This one word had a wide range of meanings. Uh, it could mean something like, uh, I decide. I judge that the peach cobbler would be better than the blackberry cobbler. You know, just a simple decision can be called a judgment. Uh, it also, in, in that culture, uh, could be taken as the judge, judging that happened in a court. There was often a judgment made in a court of law that was sort of used in the ancient world, just like it is today. And then, of course, on top of that, you had God's final judgment, his condemnation of sinners. All of those could be included in this one word. And context really is what determines how a word is being used. We actually saw a little bit of an illustration of that This morning, we sang, apparently as a good thing, that Christ condescended. Now, when was the last time you thought of condescension positively, right? Usually it's like, that person condescended to me, or condescended, they were were being condescending. And it's interesting is that one word can mean two basically opposite things. When someone speaks down to us out of pride, we call that condescension. When someone stoops down to us in sympathy, which is what Jesus did, it's also called condescension. And the whole issue of judgment and the the word having multiple meanings shouldn't throw us off uh, too much in English uh, because the word judgment or judge that has all these broad meanings in Greek is exactly the same In English, we use judge all the same ways it was used in the ancient world. We judge that it would be better to have a steak than a hamburger, that kind of like small thing. Uh, we, 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 We watch the news and hear what the latest judgment was in this particular case that's happening out there in the news. And of course, we speak about final judgment. 
And so it's not a problem to really think carefully about what a word means and to realize that a word's meaning is always most affected, not so much by its dictionary definition, but by the context in which we find it. And so we have to ask, what does this word mean? When when Jesus has judged not, we can't automatically assume we all know exactly what he meant because the word judge can mean a lot of different things. So what does he mean here in this context when he is saying, judge not. Well, first of all, let me just say this. He can't be meaning, don't be discerning. He can't be meaning, don't be discerning. And he can't be meaning, don't call certain things wrong and other things right, because the entire Sermon on the Mount has been me about teaching us how to call certain things right and other things wrong. We've been learning that we're supposed to call poor in spirit blessed. We've been learning that we should understand that divorce is not to be an option except in the most unusual circumstances or the most extreme circumstances, I should say. We've been hearing from Jesus his particular judgments on all kinds of things, and we've been apparently supposed to be following him and listening to him and agreeing with him. And so he cannot be telling us that we're to turn our discernment off, that we're not to make moral decisions. We're just to sort of sing kumbaya with everyone around the campfire and love everyone without making any moral judgments any of the time. If you wanted even a little more proof of what I'm saying, notice that the last verse we read requires us as Christians to determine that some people are dogs and pigs. Now, believe it or not, when Jesus says that we're not supposed to give to dogs what is holy, he is not talking about those precious little fur babies who've had a fresh shampoo and a nice cut, and they're just so sweet to hold and cuddle forever. He's talking about those mangy dogs that roamed the streets of countries that didn't spay or neuter. That's, that's what he's talking about, okay? And, and, and he's talking about, when he talks about pigs, he's not talking about that one breed of pig that apparently makes a good pet. He's talking about the kind that if they smell their, your blood, will eat you alive, okay? And he's using this as illustrations for how certain human beings can be. His concern is not dogs, canines, and pigs. He's saying that certain people have so debased themselves that they are like dogs and they are like pigs. And so we can't have a view of judge not that means you can't call anyone a dog or you can't call anyone a pig. Or if I could go even a little further, if you'll just glance a little further down in the Sermon on the Mount, you will find in verse 15 that Jesus says, beware of false prophets. Okay, so we are required as Christians to recognize that not all prophets are equal. Just because someone gets up on TV and says, I'm a prophet, doesn't mean we should tune in. But rather, we should be discerning and say, there are some prophets that are true and some prophets that are false. So Jesus, if we could, you know, even if you have a low view of Jesus, we tend to think he's the greatest teacher who ever was. And I'm going to tell you, he wasn't so bad that he confused categories within six verses. Okay? When Jesus says, judge not, he's not saying, shut down your abilities to make moral discernments. When he says, judge not, he's not saying, don't call anything true or false. 
When Jesus says, judge not, he is not trying to get us to go the opposite direction that the apostle Paul calls us when he tells us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that by testing, we may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So if over the last number of years, you're thinking to yourself, man, I've been really learning how to discern God's world. This is not the sermon that tells you you've been on the wrong track the whole time. Those are good abilities to cultivate as a Christian. Purely good, 100% good. Jesus is not calling us to pull back from razor-sharp discernment at all. Okay, what does he do? What is he doing? What kind of judging is being forbidden here? Judging doesn't mean the same thing in every context. We've seen that. Greek and English, that's the case. We know clearly from the rest of the Bible, the rest of the teaching of Jesus, that a certain kind of judging, a discerning, uh, developing our faculties of understanding what's right and wrong is good and should be cultivated. But there's clearly something that should be stopped, that must be ended, that shouldn't have any place in our lives. So Jesus says, judge not. Well, what does he mean? Well, we get a good sense of what Jesus means when we look at the two illustrations that Jesus gives. Now, Jesus is great because uh, when a pastor gives an illustration, you know, sometimes it's good and sometimes not so much. Uh, but, but when Jesus gives an illustration, it always makes things clear. It always makes things better. And he gives two illustrations here, and they're kind of, they're kind of ridiculous illustrations, and they're ridiculous illustrations that make things extremely not ridiculous, extremely clear. And of course, the illustrations involve trying to get a speck out of someone's eye. Can you imagine a more tender place to get surgery? I mean, there are equally tender spots on the body, but you can't see out of them. Okay, when someone comes at your eye, your whole face pulls back. No one wants a finger or a laser or a knife or an unrepentant sinner messing with their eye. And so Jesus says, hey, I want to give you an illustration about speck removal versus log removal. Some people have a log in their eye and basic rule of eye surgery is that you shouldn't do it when you have a log in your eye. It doesn't go well. And so here's what Jesus is laying out. And as you go through these illustrations, what you find is you're getting to the core of what kind of judging Jesus is forbidding. And the first thing we notice is that he's forbidding self-righteous judgment. He's forbidding self-righteous judgment. Um, let me walk you through this. Notice in Matthew 7, verse 3 and 4, Jesus asked the question, why? Why? Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? That's a deeply philosophical question. How did you get to the place where you have a log in your eye and you can't see it. But you can see a speck that's in your brother's eye. 
Uh, when I was a kid, in the back of the comic books I bought, they always had ads to buy x-ray glasses. It would let you see through things. I never, I never bought them. I don't know how effective they were. But apparently, there's, Jesus says there's a problem where we, we, many of us think we actually have these x-ray glasses, but we call them logs. We stick something big and not transparent in front of our face and then determine that we are actually capable of noticing the most minute details of what's happening in your face. And Jesus says, why? Why would that be? And I think the implied answer is because we're self-righteous. We're self-righteous. We don't see our own logs as logs. And we see other people's specks as logs. And so we wind up with a censorious, judgmental spirit that notices relatively little things in others while missing bigger things in ourselves. One of the things that happens a lot in church life is that someone will come to you and say, I see a concern with what's happening in your life. And I, I would just say, they might be wrong. Just because someone comes and tells you they have a concern doesn't mean they're right. But you ought to at least entertain the possibility. The idea that there's no way there could be anything wrong with me, I don't see it, is not a good reason. We are all capable of thinking we're seeing 2020 with a log smack dab in the middle of our faces. Every one of us. And so if that gets admitted as a possibility, then you at least need to entertain the possibility that you could be wrong in this or that situation that you never dreamed that you were wrong in. The kind of self-righteousness that Jesus is talking about is it's irrational. There's no rational reason why we notice other people's sins more than our own. There's no rational reason, but there's an irrational reason that we notice what's wrong in others, but we can't see anything wrong in ourselves. And that reason, as I said, is our own sinful self-righteousness. We see it in a clean living, prayerful man in Luke 18. The man in Luke 18 is, I'll read the story to you, it's, it's familiar, but what's so striking about it is that the guy is so oblivious to his own sin and so aware of another person's sin. So let me read you the story, Luke 18, verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. It's the log and the speck problem. That's why he told the parable. They trusted they were righteous. Nothing here. I can see clearly. I can see clearly I'm righteous. And they treated others with contempt. They looked down at the people who couldn't see what was obvious to them. And it says this, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. Always easy to have good assessment of yourself by yourself. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, 
God, I thank you. He's God-centered. He's thankful. That I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the sinner, went down to his house justified, declared righteous, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you see the spirit of self-righteousness? It can be very deceptive and hard to see. It can be prayerful, thankful, moral, Godward, sacrificial, devoted, and totally judgmental. It can be satanic at the center of the temple. I was talking to a new believer the other day. They were saying, I'm scared of myself. None of us should ever lose that. This is the kind of judging that Jesus is speaking about. It's self-righteous judging. This man shows us how we can be deep in the sin of self-righteousness while missing it and only noticing bigger sins in others. That kind of judging Jesus is calling sinful and it's self-righteous. The other kind of judging that Jesus is condemning, not the other kind, but another aspect of this judging that Jesus is condemning is its futility. It's futility. It can't actually do anything. It's futility. The kind of judging that Jesus is condemning is unhelpful and unloving. The kind of Jesus, the kind of judging Jesus is condemning is not useful or helping. It's not loving, helpful, it's not loving or transformative. It's useful and futile. Listen to how he says it. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own? First question was, why are you saying there is a speck in your eye and, and, a, and, no, and not noticing a log in mine? Why are you doing that? You must be self-righteous. You, you must be unable to see logs in your eyes. But now he asks, how? How can you say to your brother, how, how does this work? How have you got to the point where you think you see a speck that you can fix and you think you could be the one who fixed it with a log in your eye? How on earth did that happen, says Jesus? What Jesus is saying is what you're after won't work. What you're after won't work. Can you imagine a blind eye surgeon about to take a scalpel or a laser to your eye? A couple of you are like, yeah, I saw that once on YouTube. Okay, okay, there's once for everything on YouTube. But generally, this does not work. There are no blind eye surgeons. Please don't email me, there, there actually are. But as a general rule, in this world of exceptions, there are no blind eye surgeons. What's going on here, what Jesus is reminding us of is this, you've got to be healthy before you can make others better. 
You've got to be able to see before you can help. I don't mean you need to be perfect. I don't mean you need to be perfect. You can stall all the ministry in the church by making everyone think that until I'm perfect, I can't do anything for everyone else. I don't don't mean that at all. But I do mean that hypocrisy hinders ministry. I do mean that unconfessed sin hinders ministry. Think about it maybe in one of the ways it's clearest in the scriptures. Why do we have elder and deacon qualifications? Why are there ways elders and deacons must live in order for them to lead? It's not that elders and deacons have to be perfect. We see Peter blowing the gospel uh, in Galatians chapter two. We see Paul and Barnabas not getting along. We're not talking about perfection, but we are talking about real, proven character. Why does that have to be? Well, it's because if you don't take care of the sin in your own life first, you are hindered in caring for the sin in other people's lives. I could make this point a million ways from the elder qualifications, but just the easiest way, the way where it's the most spelled out, is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Do you see the logic? If this guy's got no idea how to run a home, how do you expect him to run a household? That's the logic. But the logic goes further. The elder must not be a drunkard. Because if you're a drunkard, you might be able to tell other people they shouldn't drink, but you actually haven't stored up the promises and the spiritually transforming truths that got you out of drunkenness, so you've got nothing to give the other person to get them out of drunkenness. Or if you do give it to them, they walk away going, what a a blowhard hypocrite. Or they walk away unchanged by your powerless words because God simply won't bless the labors you're putting into his word. So you just see this pattern. How can you help people when you haven't fought sin yourself? How can you help get, get people little things out of their eyes when you haven't been at home trying to do log removal? You ever tried to do log removal? I mean, let's just take tree stumps, they don't, they don't just pop out of the earth. And by the time you get a big log moved or a tree stump out of the earth, guess what? You've got new respect for people who do this regularly. And then you come at speck removal a completely different way because you've been shaped by your own log removal. So, The judging Jesus is condemning is both self-righteous judging and futile judging and hypocritical judging. Notice this in verse five. You hypocrite, that's what he says. So we know that's the kind of judgment he's talking about. What kind of judgment is Jesus talking about? Is he talking about discernment, knowing what's right and wrong? Not at all, we're to cultivate that, that's a good thing. 
What's he, he's talking about self-righteous judgment where, where, where the judgment don't, don't flow out of you having been crushed by Christ's cross and you having been humbled by Christ's grace and now out of a deep sense of your own humility and unrighteousness you're out to help others. No, that's not what's happening. What's happening is this self-righteousness and this futility and this hypocrisy. Hypocritical judgment notices all the little things in others and misses the big things in ourselves. It's hypocritical because it pretends to care a lot about sin, but really it cares a lot about your sin. I have noticed this kind of hypocrisy myself. I'm sure you notice it in yourself. I'll give you a few examples from me. I am quite understanding with myself when I am irritable. I, I think I have generally quite excellent reasons for being irritable. When I'm irritable, it's almost inevitable, really, if I'm honest. It, it, would, it would actually be strange if I wasn't. The circumstances I've been put in, the difficulties I've been made to face, I mean, how could anybody be gentle right here and not now? They couldn't be, and I won't be. It would be unreasonable for me to be anything less than irritable right this minute. And then someone else is irritable. Oh, and I've got words for all the gospel graces they should be laying a hold of and how none of us are purely shaped by circumstances. I am very understanding when I, when I drive poorly. I am not nearly as understanding when others drive poorly. I do not like it when other people look at their phone when I'm talking to them. But sometimes I've got to look. I mean, I've got, I got, got important things to look at when they're talking to me. And it's, it's embarrassing to say, it's, it's wicked, it's a double standard, it's hypocritical, and, and it's, it's simply wrong to walk through life more focused on other people's failures than on my own. It's simply, it's simply, it's sin. And it's, it's on top of that, it's church destroying sin, witness destroying sin. To live like that. Marriage destroying sin. Bad marriages are often marriages with two people with firmly entrenched logs who are speck obsessed. That's often what's going on. So beloved, we must take inventory of our own souls. We need to take inventory of our own souls. Do you judge people from a position of self-righteousness. Listen to me. In your zeal for righteousness, have you become a son of thunder? Remember the nickname Jesus gave to James and John, the two disciples who wanted fire from heaven to fall on people who rejected Jesus, even though they'd spent most of their life rejecting Jesus? Now they were ready to blast the other people who were rejecting Jesus? Some of you got personalities that would never be associated with thunder. But it doesn't mean you're any freer from sin. It can be cool bitterness, quiet judgmentalism, all hindering your fellowship with God, your effectiveness in the ministry of the church. Is your soul filled with the poison of silent bitterness? Do you walk through life with a sense of self-righteousness? One way to spot self-righteousness in your soul, and I read this years ago, one way to spot self-righteousness in your soul is that self-righteous people have no peers. They have no peers. 
They have people they look down on and they feel it over and they have people they look up to and they feel crushed by. They feel intimidated by one group of people and they feel better than another group of people and no one understands them, they have no peers. If you feel like that, you are awash in self-righteousness. It is the height of pride for you to think no one else is like you. Here's the humbling facts. There's a lot of people a lot like you. You are, you're special, but not that kind of special. <laughs> are you immersed in futile judgment? You can see what is wrong in others, but you can't help them. You can judge them, but you can't help because you're in bondage yourself. You can't be like a guide who's walked down the trail called fighting sin because you're as lost in that fight as those you're judging. So why do we judge? It's a, it's a bit of a, it's like taking a couple of Tylenols. It sort of eases the pain of our own sense of sinfulness. And when I lay down in bed alone, I feel weak, immature, unholy, ungodly. But man, there's really something a little bit relieving to notice you're a little worse. It's an easy to find an identity as the one who can see the problems in others. But let me ask you this. Are you seeing your own sins so clearly and fighting them so vigorously that you can actually join in humbly helping others in places where they, where they have problems? Or are you hypocritical? The hypocrite, again, escapes feelings of God's judgment by doling out God's judgment on others. And we need to abandon this like we'd abandon lust. We need to flee it. We must see our self-righteousness, our futile, hypocritical judgment as worse than any sin we see in others. It's a log. It's a log that makes you dangerous to everyone who has a speck. It makes me dangerous to anyone who has a speck. Judging others with a gracious spirit. Judge, I'm gonna skip that sentence. Cancel that. Now, why is Jesus pointing the sin of judging out to us so poignantly, so vividly? Why is Jesus pointing the sin of judging out to us so poignantly and so vividly? Well, the first reason is he's making something beautiful. He's making something beautiful. There's an old Jonathan Edwards sermon called The Diverse Excellencies of Jesus Christ. And the argument of the sermon is that beauty is often about contrasting things. Maybe rich hair, soft eyes, whatever you want to name it. Just beauty is often about contrasts. He's a lion. He's a lamb. He's the Lord. He's the most submissive. And so Edwards goes through this whole sermon showing the diverse excellences of Jesus Christ. You know, of course, ugliness is often the opposite, right? They're really good at zeal, but not much else, right? One virtue by itself often gets quite ugly. They're super sympathetic, but they've got no spine. It's when things come together that they get really beautiful. What's Jesus doing in this passage? He's making a people with the highest moral standard that has ever been given and making sure they're not a bunch of judgmental jerks. 
He's giving, he's making a people who have the highest standards on lust and murder and anger and hatred and marriage. And and just, it's up here. It's above anything Buddha or Muhammad ever gave. It's, It's way up here. But the people themselves are the humble, they're they're poor in spirit. They hunger and thirst for righteousness and they're poor in spirit. It's a different kind of people. There's no other people like this on earth. The world knows how to make religious zealots. The world knows how to make people with a passion for righteousness, but not humble people who are passionate for righteousness. And And the world knows how to make people who don't care about anything, man. They're just chilling out. They got no standards, whatever, no big deal but it doesn't know how to tie that. And they're humble because they're nothing and you're nothing. But it doesn't know how to bring together holiness and humility. It doesn't know how to bring together righteousness and meekness. But Jesus does, and it's no accident that this uh, two chapters of hard-driving righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, and don't you be a bunch of judgmental, hypocritical, self-righteous jerks. I love who Jesus wants us to be. He wants to make us a people of diverse excellencies, just like our Lord. A couple more reasons why Jesus is calling us not to judge, and they come from the text. The first is if we judge, we're going to be judged. If we judge, we're going to be judged. You see that there in the passage? Judge not. Why? There's a reason. There's a reason attached to the command. Judge not that you be not judged. In other words, if you go around condemning everyone else, guess what? On the last day, what you've measured out to others is coming back to you. And Jesus then goes on to use one of his Favorite principles, he actually uses this in multiple contexts, so don't assume these words always mean the same thing. They come about three times in the Gospels. But listen to this, Jesus loved to use this. With the measure you used, it will be measured to you. That's interesting. Judge not, that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you'll be judged. Would you want to sit under your judgment? Would you want to, on the last day, meet a God who treated you like you treat others? Because with the measure you use, that's the measure you're going to get. Now, this is stunning teaching. I don't fully know how to exactly put this together. We know from other parts of Scripture that there are different judgments for different ones of God's people. How do we know that? Because of what it says to teachers. Teachers, you will be judged with a stricter judgment. Okay, so we know there's a gradation but apparently you at some level can set your judgment. You can judge people the way God the Father has judged you, accepted in Christ and now to be treated kindly and mercifully while being called to the truth the whole time. Or you can judge people like the devil, full of accusations and condemnations for their every little fault. And what you dole out, you'll be met with. James, uh, who's so influenced by the Sermon on the Mount, puts it this way. 
So speak and so act as those who will be judged under the law of liberty. So God's put you under a law of liberty. You should speak and act that way. Four, judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. If you show no mercy, you will receive no mercy. If you show zero mercy, you won't be saved. You'll be judged with zero mercy. And I suspect for believers there'd be some gaining or lossing of rewards if we're a harsh and hypocritical people versus a generous and merciful people. Do people find you merciless, fault-finding, censorious, condemning? Is it hard for people to believe why you get so worked up about things because they can see the things you're so worked about in you? That's how you will find God on the last day if you treat others in a harsh, censorious way. Jesus is here trying to help us avoid God's judgment. Instead, he wants us to act in response to the grace we've been shown as we await a final judgment full of even more grace to those who are in Christ. Now, I want to make this last point, and I think it's the most important thing I'm going to say. The second reason from the text that Jesus is giving us this teaching is that he actually wants us to be helpful to other people. He actually wants us to be really helpful to other people. The people who are supposed to be the most helpful to you, to you in your Christian growth are in this room right now. Now, I don't mean there aren't other Christians elsewhere in the kingdom who can help us. I'm just saying we've covenanted to each, with each other to help one another. And the whole reason Jesus is blasting hypocrisy is not because he just gets kicked out of being prophetic. It's because he wants to cultivate love. Notice it there in verse five. You hypocrite, but it's not you hypocrite go to hell. It's you hypocrite, let me restore you and help you help other people get to heaven. I love that. If you're sitting here going, man, I'm a hypocrite. The first thing you should do is take the Lord's Supper repentantly and be restored to being helpful. Jesus' blasts are always to get more grace and truth into our lives. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You can get the specks out of other people's eyes. You can help them with sins they're struggling with. How? Focus on your own personal holiness first. I remember years ago reading an excellent article by Tim Challies where he talked about why do we do our devotions? Why do we read our Bibles and pray? And most of us answer in terms of ourselves. And that's not all wrong. Another big part of the answer is we read our Bibles and pray so that we can repent of our sins, be forgiven, and actually have something to help other people with. It's a commitment we make to one another. We should be a people who say with the Apostle Paul, I am the chief of sinners. And isn't it amazing that the guy who said I'm the chief of sinners was the most helpful person in the early church to sinners? Those two walked together. Paul's deep sense of his own sinfulness didn't make him less helpful to other people. It made him more helpful to other people because he'd actually fought sin and he'd actually overcome it through the grace of Christ. 
We should take such long, hard looks at ourselves and our own sins and such long, lingering looks at God's grace to us that everyone else's sins should be like specks in in our eyes. And then we should not develop a devilish attitude that says, oh, we all sin. There's the other problem, right? You start going, oh, we all got logs in our eyes. Everybody's got a log in their eye. That's just the way it is. Total depravity, man. Everybody's a sinner. That's what life is here on earth. Just everybody with logs in their eyes. That's not where the Bible goes. So beautiful and balanced. It says, get the log out and go help somebody. You can't help somebody, but you're the most helpful when you've been thinking before God about the biggest problems in your life, the concrete ones, the ones that bug other people who know you. And you've been asking God to forgive you, to change you, and guess what? You'll wind up with a stockpile of truths in your soul that actually help other people with their sins. Now, as you go through the New Testament, you find this is the kind of care for others the New Testament commands. Listen to Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, don't judge him, just let it go. That's not what it says. We're still to be discerning. There's real transgression. Brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spiritual of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Do you, I, I hear echoes of the Sermon on the Mount everywhere there, right? You're gentle because you've been getting logs out. You're not failing to discern. You discern there's a problem and something must be done, but you're moving in gently and there's not a whiff of self-righteousness because you're thinking, man, I could be tempted. Man, I could be tempted. I could fall in the middle of this restoration process. When you're trying to restore other people, do you recognize yourself at that moment as particularly vulnerable to temptation? We're all dangerous to each other if we don't. Brothers and sisters, if we are a people who are dealing with our fellow Christian sins and we cannot deal with them gently, then we have lost touch with the magnitude of our own sins. Well, let me finish with one final word. And it's a word to those who don't know Jesus. Let me say that what I am talking about here is freedom. I'm talking about freedom. Because one of the most awful things about sin, it's so bizarre, is the further down you sink, the more you look down on everyone. The more you go down in sin, the more you find that everyone is below you, beneath you, worse than you. We sink and sink and sink, but we keep looking down on others. We are incurably proud without God. But in Christ, we see our sin clearly. We're rebels, we're self-centered, we're always trying to have our needs met above meeting the needs of others. We stop making excuses for how our griefs and sorrows justify our sins and our sinful comforts. We stop all that and we see our Savior 
He has come for us, not to judge, but to save, and to save by taking judgment on himself. Judgment he does not deserve, but he takes it all, our death, our shame, God's wrath. He takes them all for us, and we see that in that death, we can be saved, forgiven, lowly, base sinners like us can be lifted, forgiven, adopted, redeemed, and promised eternal life. And as he lifts us up in salvation, it's amazing, we stop looking down on others. And we see them as just as sinful, maybe even less sinful than ourselves. And we are freed from the proud and lonely condemnation that fills our souls without Christ. Look on him and be saved. Let him free you from that pride. And let him teach you how to walk in forgiveness and humility. Believers, let's look on him and be satisfied. Let's look on him and let it change the way we see others. And let it fill you with a generous, merciful heart that's able to rightly judge not. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We need your truth. We need your teaching. We need your attitude shaping our hearts, all of us. Lord, we don't want to weaponize these things against each other. Like we're always accusing people of not having taken enough, enough log out of their own eye. But rather we want to just take the logs of our own eye, fighting our own self-righteousness, our own uselessness, our own hypocrisy, and learning to love by first fighting our own sin and then helping our brothers and sisters along the path to heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.